This is the Fathering Project podcast, Figuring It Out Together, where we tackle many challenges facing dads and father figures and explore fathering across all ages, from newborns to toddlers, school age and teenagers. We speak with experts in their fields to help you navigate solutions and positive outcomes for each stage of your fathering journey. Let's figure it out together. Hello and welcome to the Fathering Project podcast. Katia Gapaya here and today we're joined by a remarkable man who's had quite a journey to date, Dr. Ben Bravery. He joins us to share some of his story from beating cancer to finding his father, becoming a doctor, becoming a father himself and writing a book. Um, Originally a zoologist and science communicator, Dr. Ben Bravery became a doctor in 2018, is now undertaking specialty training in psychiatry. Ben volunteers, advocates, writes, and speaks about colorectal cancer, living with cancer, cancer in young adults, medicine and medical education, and is committed to advocating for change in Australia's healthcare system. Ben, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Looking forward to it. We are really keen to hear all about your journey. So if you don't mind, we'll jump straight into the questions. Go for it. Uh, Let's start with your new book, The Patient Doctor. Can you give us a brief rundown of the contents and how it all came about? I sure can. Um, Yeah, so The Patient Doctor is a memoir that I released in June um, nationally. And it kind of covers a little bit of my childhood and then um, this kind of shock diagnosis I got when I was 28, um, the, the bowel cancer you mentioned in your intro. And then I describe in um, some detail the cancer treatments I underwent and what it was like that age, um, never having been ill, um, no family history of major illness to be put in the hospital system and to undergo chemo and radiation therapy and have a couple of surgeries. And then I describe uh, what happened to me after treatment. So spat back into the normal world, uh, quote unquote, to get back to things. So wanting to, you know, keep working on my relationship, uh, get back into career, build the CV, maybe save for a house. There was this rush to get my 30 something life back on track, but it didn't end up like that. I I ended up realizing after a, a couple of job transitions that, Uh, something had shifted and I needed to do something different with my life. And through some reflection, I worked out that that needed to involve healthcare and me becoming a doctor. So I took myself back to medical school and retrained. And now I'm four years um, out of medical school and uh, training as a registrar uh, in Sydney. The idea of the book and, and, you know, the cheeky title, The Patient Doctor, is really how I've juggled these two hats. So I went to medical school having been sick. And that's really different from going to medical school and then getting sick down the track. Once you're already a qualified doctor, once you already know the health system, I kind of went in um, as a sick person looking for answers. Part of the reason I went to med school was to um, you know, go and give back to the community that had saved me. I got amazing treatment. Um, from really good people in an incredible healthcare system that, you know, in Australia doesn't cost us anything. Uh, and the second reason was I'd noticed a few things along the way that I 
would want to tweak if I had to go back and you know get sick again. Um, the technical care was brilliant, but often some of the humanity was missing from my interactions. And we all have these stories, right? Like not having questions answered or getting a look from a, a nurse or a doctor, maybe sitting in a waiting room for hours and hours and hours, not knowing what's happening around you. You know, the, these added up over time in my long treatment. And I decided that to kind of address them, I had to go back into the system and work at it from the inside. That's amazing. Um, it must have been incredibly difficult to find out you had stage three cancer at the age of 28. And, um, you know, right at the beginning of your sort of working life and active life in that sense. And then to hit, as you're saying, um, system issues. There's a lot of navigation of the system in itself that we all have to do um, with, you know, the medical system. So uh, it must have been very difficult and challenging for you. It was, um, it was and is still the, the hardest thing I've um, done. It, you know, getting a diagnosis like cancer, um, it, you know, it sucks at any age, but it takes on this extra meaning the younger you are because it, 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 there's, there's a cruelty to it in the sense that, you know, your 20s are supposed to be about looking forward and ambition and excitement and, you know, fear is there, but it's in the background and you trust your body, you trust it to perform, um, you make plans and lock yourself into things, never thinking about there being any other way and never thinking about that you might not be around to enjoy those things. So, you know, I was faced with my mortality at a young age, and we might talk a bit later about how that's changed me, but you also very quickly, like you say, have to navigate a completely foreign system. And I had some skills, you know, I had some scientific literacy, um, you know, I'm a white guy, so the system's kind of built around me. I had lots of privilege in it, but I still found it hard. I still found it hard. And, uh, you know, if not for the people around me, it, it would have been much harder. It, it really is. It really was a group effort. You know, it's my name on the front of the book, but there's a big support ne support network around me. Yes, absolutely. Um, I can imagine no one ever thinks that cancer will come knocking at their door at the age of 28. Um, and it's a life experience that changes you in more ways than one. How do you think it has influenced the man you've become today? It's kind of, it's impossible to um, disentangle that experience from who I am now. I sometimes say that, um, you know, I'm grateful for the experience and there are lots and lots of positives but I wouldn't go back and do it again, or I wouldn't wish it on anyone else. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. You, you go to some dark places. It's a big challenge. It's an existential challenge. Um, so not only are you contemplating, you know, the heart of life and death, you're contemplating um, what it is that you, you do in the world, um, how you contribute you have to lean on people in a way that you haven't before, you know, um, that again, that, that, that decade is an independent one. It's one where you break free from the family house or your parents or university and you go and make your way. I, I very quickly had to rely on people again. I became dependent on them. It, you know, before medicine, I, I was really into animals and I was into conservation and I, that was what I was working, communicating and studying. And I didn't have a 
great deal of time for people. I know that sounds like a funny thing to say, but I, my, my, my attention was elsewhere. What being sick did, which is a deeply human experience, it really made me look in at my connections and my relationships because those connections and relationships are actually what matters at the end of the day. All the other stuff fell away. And that gives you a deep sense of gratitude, but it also shows you the fragility of what you've built. It shows you the fragility of those connections. To think that, you know, you could be 28 and building a business and meeting a lover and all this kind of stuff, and then just suddenly lose it all gives everything a, a really different perspective. I, you know, I've kind of got the, you know, 28, I kind of got the mentality of an, like an 82-year-old, if you flip the numbers, I kind of saw the end and sometimes it frightened me but sometimes it also emboldened me it gave me a, a new sense of purpose and a way to filter what I want to do and who I want to be you know it made the important things more important and the less important things less important I guess you realize how precious life is and how quickly it can change for you so you mm prioritize the things that are really important to you. Now, you wanted to see change in the healthcare system, so you took matters into your own hands. And this isn't the first time you've done this. When you were younger, you were proactive in your search for a dad. Can you share a little bit of your journey with us there? I can, but I can't talk about dad unless I talk about mum. <laughs> so you allow me to divulge for a second. Um, my mum had me uh, when she was 18 and it, um, you know, my, my father wasn't around. Um, it was a complicated kind of social situation and she had decided that to give me the life that she felt I deserved, um, she would put me up for adoption. And so she'd gone her whole pregnancy um, interacting with social workers and the system about how that would look when I was born. And so she moved um, from northern New South Wales to the Gold Coast um, near to my birth um, and then had me at Southport Hospital. And um, as was the case then, um, babies that were put up for adoption were very quickly whisked away from the mother. So um, she didn't get to hold me. Um, she didn't get to see me. They just kind of told her I was a boy, wrapped me up and, and lugged me out into the nursery. And then they moved her to another part of the hospital that she didn't have to interact with other mums in there and their bubs. But, um, you know, the first day, the first two days that ate away at her and she found a sympathetic nurse who um, really saw the conflict she had now about that decision and would sneak her up to the nursery to meet me and hold me. And that changed things for her. She decided then on day three that she was going to keep me on day four. The social workers arrived to collect me. Um, she changed her mind. They were very aggressive about it. They'd probably seen a lot of young women change their minds and insisted that she go through with what she'd promised. But uh, that, that same nurse actually advocated for it. And at one point, actually, um, ushered them out of the room and slammed the door shut in their faces and then held it shut. Such was her conviction in, in what my mum had decided to do. So from the very beginning, it was a very special kind of relationship. You know, she'd deliberately chosen to keep me. She still said it was the best decision she'd ever made. And unfortunately, her choice in men continued. Um, you know, she chooses people that are great for her, but they don't necessarily make great dads. And I'm very open with her about that. So there was a series of men in my life which had characteristics that I 
didn't necessarily gel with and often didn't like. And so it occurred to me, you know, in adolescence that I, I wanted that figure. I wanted that. I, I wanted to stop letting other people pretend they were my dad. I wanted to find one. And I couldn't, to be honest, I couldn't rely on mum to do that. So I went looking and um, I would kind of screen people. It was just as a thing I did myself, you know, and I, I was very careful. So I wanted somebody that um, wasn't very aggressive. I'd been an, around enough aggressive men. Uh, I wanted a pacifist, someone calm, almost too calm. I um, it didn't, I thought it would be awkward if they had kids because I wasn't sure how to navigate that space. So it'd be better if they hadn't had children. Um, you know, they didn't, it would be better if they'd never been with my mum. So that was, that was that category. And, you know, I went, I went like this for some time, just silently weighing up people. And um, I, I came across this gentleman who was um, uh, a partner of my um, first girlfriend's mum. And we started to talk on the phone and he would visit and we'd hang out and he, he ticked a lot of these boxes. Um, he was a social worker working in education and just had a really beautiful, kind soul. He wasn't looking for me, though, like I had been looking for a dad. So I took it really slowly. And then uh, over time, it evolved. I, I had to be a little bit assertive, but I was mindful. I didn't want to be rejected. And I didn't want to feel that, you know, he was being pressured. But over time, this relationship slowly grew. His name's Ian. And um, I took myself up to his place and would stay there on the university holidays. And slowly, you know, we got to know each other and develop this kind of love. And eventually, you know, I stopped saying to people, um, you know, this, this guy is like a dad to me and just said, he's my dad. And he stopped saying, um, you know, this, this, this guy's like a son to me and would just introduce me as his son. Um, you know, he, he has photos of me on his desk at work and, you know, I made him stubby coolers and gave him golf balls and for Father's Day, all the kinds of things that I hadn't got to do as a kid. And now, now it's a lovely, it's a lovely relationship that, that means the world to me. That's a beautiful story. And, um, you know, very mature of an adolescent to be managing and addressing um, a need that is obviously there. Um, we say that at the Fathering Project as well. Father figures play a key role in mm in a child's life and in your case in, in a teen boy's life and impact the men that boys become mm. so it really had an enormous impact on you that's um that's wonderful to see that you went out and found exactly the kind of dad you were looking for yeah i think i think you know just your comment then has made me think it, it a lot of people had like my mum wanted me to have this i i know that i could see the guilt that she carried that she hadn't created the, you know, the quote unquote nuclear family for me. Um, she's got a Catholic background. So there's all that kind of stuff enmeshed in it, but she wanted this for me. And, and I think sometimes she'd forced other men into that role. And I, you know, I often got the vibe. They didn't want that. And, and that was okay. But as a kid, it was quite confusing. And then sometimes they had traits and characteristics that really weren't fatherly um, and, and they weren't having a good impact on me. And I think partly it was like, you know, mum demonstrating that I needed this, but not having the capacity to provide it or pick, or pick the right kind of person. And so it, it was up to me. I mean, nobody, nobody else was going to do it. And I think, you know, if I, if I hadn't, um, I, I still wouldn't have that person in my life. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. That's a, that's a great story. We do say to a lot of our um, audiences that many people become a father 
figure without realizing they've become a father figure because there's someone in their vicinity, um, you know, a neighbor's child or someone in the team that their child plays in or somewhere that looks up to them and makes them a father figure without them even realizing and is role modeling them. Mm. So effectively that's sort of what you just started mm. with. You found him and you were, you made him a father figure for yourself before he realized he was a father figure. Mm. So that's amazing. Now you also became a father yourself. How has your past life experience and the man you now call your dad impacted the type of father you are to your son? It's, again it's it's kind of a response to what i experienced as a child and 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 some of it is the stuff that i wanted to keep and some of it is what i never wanted to be a part of again um i i am very aware of the importance of attachment um i i actually took a year off with my son so when my wife was um, you know, when he was six months old, um, she was starting to itch to get back to work. Um, and that's totally valid. And I supported that. And I was itching myself to pull out of work and spend that time with him. There's, there's two parts to that. One is I never had that. So I only ever had mum. And, uh, you know, even finding Ian later in life, I think it was like 15, 16, 17 by the time we'd solidified things. Um, you know, you never get that time, that 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 really quality attachment at such a vulnerable age. The 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 second thing was because of cancer, I know how important this stuff is, and I know that time is precious and uncertain. And I wanted that time with him. I wanted to invest that time in with him. And like a lot of people that take um, parental leave, paternity and maternity. I had all these silly ideas about all the things I wanted to achieve in that time. I was going to sit exams. I was going to continue my master's. I was going to continue the book. And very quickly, I realized that I just wanted to be with him. I just wanted to be a dad and a partner. And so I did. I stripped it all back and I just spent every day with him and, you know, modeled who I wanted him to become, modeled positive attachment, love, kindness, and, and more importantly, safety. I think the thing that I missed in my childhood was a, a degree of safety and a degree of predictability. And, you know, that that's partly the role that Ian plays. He's extremely predictable. He's extremely dependable. Um, you know, it frustrates some people that he's so calm and methodical and reliable. But it's exactly what I wanted. And it's a absolute joy to watch them interact because Ian often says to me he never expected to be a father let alone a grandfather so now he has this whole other richness to his life and I'm watching them bond and I'm watching things transmit directly from Ian to Everin and Everin back to Ian without me and that's just a beautiful thing to watch man to man beautiful now at the Fathering project, we say being a dad is the most important job you will have. Um, being a doctor is also a very demanding job. How do you find the balance with work and family life now? I have not found the balance. I'm very honest about that. It's really hard. Um, it's really hard. So, you know, I'm, I'm training as a junior doctor. We all know about the, the pressure on junior doctors. It's almost in the news every day. Um, that, that pressure is real. 
the conflict between um, what we give to our patients and what we give to people in our private lives is as tense as it's ever been. I often have to make decisions about spending time with everyone versus spending extra time at the hospital or extra time at clinic or just making another phone call. At the same time, you know, the the training does require me to do a master's in, in my quote unquote spare time. I do have to study, you know, for months at a time for exams. Um, there is a lot of stuff trying to corrupt my time. The way I've managed that, and I don't, I don't have the balance right yet. I, I it's in a moving, it's a moving beast is um, I kind of, have had to let other things fall away. So social life, for example, you know, if it's a choice between lunch with someone and extra time with everyone, knowing that I'm not there for him a lot of the time I want to be, I, I will choose him. So it means that I'm probably more attentive when we do have time together. I put the phone away so I don't carry my phone when we're off on a bike ride or we're off playing at the park because I want to protect that attention because if I've got competing demands, the time I have with him is really precious to both of us. So, you know, it comes at a cost of having to choose where to spend your time. And then when I'm with him, I try to make it 100% of my focus. He's a lucky boy. That's <laughs> wonderful. Um, now, our last question to you is for anyone listening who might be in the same position as your 28-year-old self or perhaps even going through a health issue with their child, what advice do you have for them? Every situation is going to be really different. So there's no kind of, you know, one-stop shop or one rule that fits everybody. But there's some general things that I've learned. And, and these are things I tell my own patients. Um, find people you know, find your tribe, find people in your community that are experiencing what you're experiencing. There's a very deep sense of validation that comes when you hang out, interact, talk with online people that have the same challenges you do. Um, take someone else to every medical appointment or checkup, even if you're not expecting bad news because you don't know what's waiting. And if you get really bad news, you, you might turn off. I turned off when I heard the word cancer. Had my mum not been there to take everything in, I would have been quite lost in the days and weeks that followed. Um, I get people, I encourage people to write things down. So thoughts and fears, questions. I don't, I am not afraid of Dr. Google. I encourage people to look up things, look up papers, even if you don't understand it all get what you can and take it back to a doctor or back to a health provider so that you can discuss it. So I think it's about, you know, trusting your instinct, arming yourself with information, surrounding yourself with people that get it. And then with that strength, trying to form a mutual relationship with people that are looking after your child or diagnosing your mum or treating you. Ben, um, thank you very much. It has been such a pleasure to have you join us today. Uh, your story is inspiring and what you continue to do for your community is admirable. Thank you for giving your time to share it with us today. Uh, listeners, to hear more of Ben's story, we encourage you to grab yourself a copy of The Patient Doctor from Ben's website, benbravery.com. The link will also be up on the Fathering channel. Ben, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much.